Stuart Burns. Stu Burns has been gardening professionally for over 20 years, growing indigenous plants and edibles with equal passion. An honours degree in applied science in horticulture from Burnley College complemented years of hands-on experience in nurseries, landscaping and parks and gardens. A former tutor and lecturer for the University of Melbourne, he has taught a range of subjects including practical horticulture, plant propagation, landscape theory, plant pathology, biology, ecology and technical writing. He has also been a researcher for Gardening Australia. I get so excited. Um, on ABC TV, a broadcaster on Melbourne's 3CR radio and a blogger. Currently running a horticultural consultancy and education business dedicated to improving domestic and commercial environments, I invite Stu. Um, you're probably wondering why, what, what, what have I got to do with science anyway, but um, before I get on to my subject, I would like to point out that uh, it's not going to be the last mention of Nazis. In your face, Mitch. Um, I did actually go on and start a PhD, but I, I, I came into science through horticultural science. I ended up doing genetic analysis of mycorrhizal fungi that live in the plant roots of Australian plants and travelled to Canada to study that for a while as well. So that makes a lot of sense, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Um, but I'm glad Mitch did come in and bring up some of the issues uh, that he did. Um, not just the Nazis, but philosophy in general, because I think, you know, the difference between what's good and what's evil, who's a hero and who's a villain, that can be a bit blurry sometimes. Uh, depending on where you're standing philosophically, looking at the individual, and also the division between science and technology can be a bit blurry as well. And certainly the person who I'm going to be talking about uh, is a good illustration of... Where do you draw the line on these kind of issues? And uh, here's a good illustration of him. I don't know if you can see that. I'll put him in this light. It all depends on the light you see someone in, right? Um, that's, uh, that's Fritz Haber. I'll Hand those around. You can, you, can, you can put them on your kid's bedroom wall and scare them. If they're not scared and they go, oh, it just looks like Mike Myers, you can say, well, the really scary thing is you might make another Austin Powers movie. Ooh. So Fritz Haber, that's, that's Fritz. You'll get to look at his, his face at some point. Now, Fritz was born in 1874 and in... The 19th century, there'd been some amazing scientific breakthroughs in the 19th century, uh, the century he was born. So germ theory, huge breakthrough. People didn't worry that evil spirits were causing their illness anymore. They knew, oh, you get sick because you get a bug and we can actually maybe treat that. Um, and because they could figure out that this is something causing an illness they realised, oh, we can actually treat those things. So they started developing treatments for things. So people started living, which was great, because people like that. Um, and also, you know, engineering made great strides in, you know, removing people's poo from where they lived, stuff like that. You know, simple stuff like that that meant that cities were no longer 
disease-ridden cesspools, mostly. Depends where you lived. Um, but the upshot of all this was that there was a lot more people and they were living for longer. And when people live for longer, they eat more and they drink more. And they need food and they need drink. And all of our food and of all of our drinks uh, come from plants. Might be a shock. This is, this is where being a gardener comes into it. All of our food and drink comes from plants. Doesn't matter if you only eat steak, there's plants involved somewhere along the line. If you're a vegan, well, there's lots of plants involved somewhere along the line. If all you do is drink beer, hate to break it to you, plants are involved. So the thing about plants is they need uh, nitrogen. Heavily, heavily reliant on nitrogen. No nitrogen, the plants die. Okay, so we've got to grow all these plants, we've got to grow all this food to feed all these people who are living for longer. And so we need a whole lot more nitrogen. So where do we get nitrogen from? That's a good question. So in the late 19th century, all the European superpowers, we're talking, you know, Germany, France, Spain. Well, Spain did a bit more in, before the 19th century, but they suddenly realised they were running out of stuff. They'd had all these people for so long and they just kept recycling and recycling. But then they realised that a lot of their nutrients, they were just growing them on the farm, growing food, growing plants, feeding people, making bread, making beer, feeding it to people and then piercing it out into the rivers and out into the ocean, which meant all that beautiful nitrogen was just washing out to sea. So they went, you know what, we'll go to less developed countries and steal all their nitrogen. This is a great idea. So they went around and colonised as much of the world as they could possibly manage in a very short amount of time until pretty much there's nowhere in the world that wasn't colonised by somebody. Now, they were looking for nitrogen, and nitrogen occurs naturally in droppings, animal droppings, human droppings, but birds and bats have particularly potent poo. So one of the things people went out in search of was big piles of shit. <laughs> and they found them. There's, there's caves full of millennia worth of bat shit. And that was valuable stuff. Uh, now, Germany sent ships all the way around the world to a beautiful little island called Nauru. You might have heard of this place, I don't know. It was a big pile of shit. It always was. Now it's a smaller pile of shit. There's nothing left on it because all the shit got dug out and now we send people there to live on a pile of shit, basically. But that's not entirely the Germans' fault. The Germans sent the ships there in the first place but uh, as soon as World War I broke out, the British said, hey, you guys in Australia, can you go and make sure the Germans can't get any shit from Nauru? It's ours now. So we went, okay, so that's why we have this amazing relationship. <laughs> okay, enough of that. People figured, chemists figured, there's gotta be a better way of getting nitrogen. The atmosphere itself, is 80% nitrogen. How do we get that nitrogen out of the atmosphere and grow plants with it? There are some plants that can do that by themselves. They're called the bean family. They grab nitrogen out of the air, puts it into their roots, and they get their own nitrogen. Most plants can't do that. They're hopeless. But 
the 80% of the atmosphere that's nitrogen, we don't need it, we don't breathe nitrogen, we can't do anything with it, we breathe it in, we breathe it out, nothing happens. Um, although if you go deep sea diving, you get too much nitrogen, you get bubbles in your blood and your brain explodes and stuff, but that's beside the point. So, Fritz Haber was a chemist and he'd been working on all sorts of stuff. He'd been figuring out different ways of making alcohol and putting things under pressure and combining different stuff, like people did in the late, you know, 19th century, early 20th century. They just put a whole bunch of shit together and see what happened. And, you know, oh, nothing happened that time, so let's heat it up and see what happens. Or let's put it under pressure and see what happens. Or let's, you know, freeze it and see what happens. So he was doing all this stuff and he figured out that he could get ammonium, which is a form of nitrogen, from the air if you put it under enough pressure using catalysts like, you know, uranium, stuff like that, that was just lying around his lab. <laughs> so he, he figured out this process and then he gave it to a guy called uh, uh, Carl Bosch, who worked for a company called BASF, who were formed in the middle of the 19th century, making, you know, stuff. They weren't making cassette tapes or anything in those days because they hadn't invented that yet, but they were doing like weird, sciencey chemistry stuff. So this guy, Carl Bosch at BASF, went, oh, wow, great process. Good one, Fritz. Uh, I'll, I'll make a machine that can do that all the time. And so he did. And so he industrialised this process. And they both got Nobel Prizes for their work. Uh, Fritz Haber got it for the chemistry side of it. And, uh, well... Carl Bosch got a chemistry Nobel Prize as well, but he was more of an engineer. But so they both got honoured for their work, and this was called the Haber-Bosch process. It was getting nitrogen out of the air, turning into ammonium, which you could then feed your plants with. Interestingly, when World War I broke out, the Allies, mostly the British to begin with, used to have the nickname for the German soldiers of Fritz, or the Bosch. Now, this had actually nothing to do with Fritz Haber or um, Carl Bosch. But um, the other thing that nitrogen is really, really useful for is making explosives. So if you ever buy a large amount of nitrogen fertiliser and diesel and you don't own a farm, <laughs> someone's going to come knocking on your door. Just, I'll be clear, that's pretty obvious. So... Large amounts of explosive going into World War I, great. Thanks, Fritz Haber. You're awesome. We can make all these explosives and win the war. But Fritz wasn't content to just rest on his laurels for making an amazing process to make explosives out of air, basically. Um, he enlisted in the German army. He went, I want to get in there. I want to be right in there battling these evil people from the other side of the channel. He was promoted to captain really quickly and as a chemist he thought wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to use up all our explosives we could just kill people with gas. Wouldn't that be awesome? And they went good idea Fritz. You're in charge of our chemical weapons division. So, so Fritz Haber despite knowing that this was expressly forbidden by the Hamburg Convention, which probably no one's really ever heard of. That predates the Geneva Convention by about 50 years. Um, 
he said, okay, we can use chlorine gas. And he actually was in charge of launching the first chlorine gas attack in World War I at Ypres in France. Not everyone, <clears throat> not everyone was impressed with this idea, including his wife, who broke into his room, stole his service revolver and shot herself in the garden. But after that, he got a new wife. It's okay. <laughs> the, the, use of, the use of chemical warfare was absolutely banned. It didn't actually work that well, for one thing, because if you launch a chemical attack at your enemy and the wind's blowing the wrong way, it blows all back on you. So it's, a, it's not really that great an idea. It was a pretty dumb idea, really. Um, but he did, he did actually intend to use his chemical know-how for the good of Germany, and he actually was quoted as saying, in a rough translation, he said, in peacetime, a scientist works for science. In wartime, he works for his country. Okay, fair enough. But he ended up, and Haber's not actually a really obviously Jewish name, but it is a Jewish name. So at some point after the First World War finished, um, some, some gentlemen, we can call them gentlemen, gentlemen, that's probably better. They were well-dressed, let's put it that way, very nice uniforms, came knocking on his door and said, you and everyone in your lab has to get out of this building because we're seizing it. So he left the country. He went to Britain. He ended up in Switzerland. But he kept working as a chemist, as a scientist. He was, he was quite a good scientist. Now, whatever his intent was... He didn't, like, he didn't like the people who'd come to power in Germany, so he decided to take his work away from them, which is probably a good thing, because he continues to work in chemistry and he developed things, some of which are really not very nice. He developed Zyklon B gas. If you don't know what that is, you can look that up later. I'm not going to explain it right now. But also a number of really useful things, like the glass-tipped pH meters, which probably exist in every lab, and you can get them to stick in your pocket these days, but they're still used up to this day. He was such a good uh, chemical engineer and physicist. Of course, he studied physics as well, because back in those days, it was all just science. So he studied, studied physics, studied chemistry, did a bit of engineering, did a bit of this, did that. So he did some really amazing things. He actually figured out... One of his teachers was the, probably the second most famous scientist called Bunsen. Uh, not Bunsen Honeydew. It was Robert Bunsen who invented the Bunsen burner. That was one of his teachers. Haber actually figured out why does it go blue when you move the little thing around. So he figured out what the chemical reaction was going on there and figured out a way of uh, judging the temperature of flames by the amount of light they were emitting. He was pretty polymathic, I guess. But look, he died in Switzerland in 1934 before his work was used in the Second World War in some ways, which might have changed allegiance, but I think he'd given up on Germany by that point. He lived in Switzerland. He was neutral. Um, and obviously he did intend for his work to be used for ill intent at times. Um, and, you know, obviously going, hey, we can use this process to make explosives, that's awesome, is not really that nice um, when you think about it. But... The obvious thing that he did achieve is that in, at the turn of the 20th century, 1900, there's about 
1.2 billion people in the world and increasing because of engineering and sanitation and medicine and all that stuff. And it has increased and now we have 7 point something billion people in the world. So to feed all of those 7 billion people in the world, they produce 100 million tonnes of nitrogen industrially in the world. And it's been estimated that in every human body, about 40% of the nitrogen that's in every human body is traceable to the Haber-Bosch process. So effectively, a large part of every one of us is owing our actual living, breathing existence to Fritz Haber, regardless of whether you think he's a science hero or if you think he's an evil science villain. Thank you very much.